This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. Steve Patterson hates fun. Steve, <laughs> Steve, why do you hate fun so much? I'm just a curmudgeon, Isaac. <laughs> so what I want to talk with Steve about today is um, welcome back to the show first. Thank you for uh, for joining me a second time. Thanks for having me. Uh, Steve has a, a couple different blog posts, excellent blog posts um, that have gotten a, a great deal of uh, attention and, and traction. Um, one on metaphysics and then uh, two on paradoxes. Um, so I want to kind of talk about both of these separately, but there's some connection and get a feel for, um, why Steve hates all the things that make life so fun and open-ended and full of, and full of possibilities. So let's, let's start with metaphysics. You have this great lengthy post. Um, I don't know, maybe it's sensational to call it a takedown of, of metaphysics, but certainly of a popularized version of it. And there's a, uh, you, you added a note to clarify, uh, later on after some feedback on the piece. Um, that you're specifically addressing movies like what the bleep do we know? And I read that and I was so heartbroken, Steve, because when I watched that movie, probably, geez, it's probably been 10 years or more. If it's that old, I think it is. Um, it was like one of these great experiences. A friend recommended me. It was like, Oh, it's just, everything is just mind blowing. It's full of possibility. It's wild. It's trippy. And it makes you feel like to me, like the world is this malleable place. Who knows? There's so much unknown. There's so much out there. Why are you going to rain on my parade and call it a bunch of claptrap? Well, so there's one thing that can be said about the universe containing mystery, which it does. And it's exciting and it's beautiful. Um, but it's another thing to claim that the universe contains paradoxes. Um, and that piece that I wrote is specifically geared towards people, well, it's really two groups of people. It's one who think that quantum physics implies that the, the universe is just a great pile of contradictions, um, all kind of merged on top of one another. Uh, and then the other group of people is, it's directed at kind of the Deepak Chopras of the world, um, who, who claim that there's this mystical connection between your consciousness and the entire universe. They say things like, you know, that all, all of reality is contained in your consciousness and that you can will things into existence and that there is no external reality and everything is mind dependent. And they're beautiful ideas, uh, but I think they're grossly inaccurate. And as it relates to quantum physics, um, the, 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 the title of the piece that I wrote is called uh, Quantum Physics and the Abuse of Reason. And that's a bit sharp, but I think to draw the connection between like mysticism, conscious mysticism, and quantum physics is really nothing short of an abuse of reason. The connection just isn't there. So almost, uh, okay, so I'm thinking of a couple books that I read. It's been several years now, but that I also really enjoyed, um, you know, sort of a layman's guide to to uh, quantum, quantum physics. Um, the Fabric of the Cosmos uh, by Brian Greene. And then there's one called The Quantum Universe. And I can't remember the author of that one. And they got into the quantum universe, got into some some mathematical stuff that was a little bit heady. Um, but both of them, especially the latter, seem to have, and maybe this is a marketing thing, this idea that you know all possibilities are present at once, uh, or at least like until an observer focuses their attention on something, it yes. doesn't take any specific form. And so in order to, and, and, and from a theoretical standpoint, this theory was put forward to explain experiments that didn't seem to have other explanations. And if you give it this explanation that, that all these possibilities are, um, sort of simultaneously occurring, now you've got a world where maybe there's like nine or 11 dimensions to make this happen. And these, these are all theories and I think for the best physicists, there are theories they employ specifically to see, to, to try to prove false, to see what would happen if that were the case. But you're maybe not so much ripping on the use of wild and crazy theories as a way, as, as things to, to test out and see if they explain the experiments. You're more ripping on the move from, hey, look, here's some physicists put forth this theory that 
this experiment could be explained if there were 11 dimensions to someone saying there are 11 dimensions and you can transcend this one and move between them and giving you sort of life advice based on that. Is that where your real beef is? Uh, so there's there's two beefs. One's a little bit more controversial than the other. Uh, the one beef, yes, that that's what I would call is the Deepak Chopras of the world that think, yeah, and it, so my criticism is not that there's 11 dimensions. There might be 11 dimensions. But the connection that they're trying to make is with a very difficult topic, quantum physics, and another very difficult topic in consciousness. And then they say, well, these two topics are very difficult to understand. Therefore, they're blended in some way. And so uh, specifically, um, the whole group of um, quantum, they're, they're called quantum mystics, or sometimes the, the, um, the topic is called quantum woo or quantum flat doodle, as it's, it's sometimes lovingly called. <laughs> I like it, that one. I've never heard that. It, it rests on this idea that observation is what determines reality. And, and physicists would agree that it's true observation determines reality. However, the first embarrassing error is made, and it's quite apparent that observation doesn't mean what people think it means. To a physicist, observation means um, like physical interaction with an object or physical measurement of, um, that's my dog whining in the background. <laughs> I was like, oh, you have kids, congratulations. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, it's, it's physically recorded measurement. Not in any way does observation refer to human awareness of something. So the quantum mystics have taken this term that we usually talk about, you know, some, we observe something implies that, oh, you know, we're just looking at it idly. But in reality, that's not at all what's going on. Observation has nothing to do with human awareness. And they take this mistake and they, they apply it to like, these these epic proportions where they say, oh, look, this is proof that consciousness is in the center of the universe and like all is one and all is dependent on your mind. It's like, no, 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 this is just based on a terminological error. And so that's why that's one of the reasons I think it's kind of embarrassing that it, it, a lot of these woo woo mystical arguments come down to a, a basic terminological error. So um, I, I remember, I think this was in What the Bleep Do We Know or something like that. There were some... I don't know, experiment or claim that um, it was like water molecules that were frozen and those that had people, it was either saying positive words or thinking beautiful thoughts uh, mm -hmm. near them. Mm -hmm. They froze in a more beautiful pattern and those right. that didn't have like a chaotic pattern. Um, is this all just hooey? Yes. Uh, and <laughs> so the, the experiment you were referencing, I, I think the guy's name is Dr. Emoto or something like that. Um, and so, so you can just Google, he's essentially a fraud. And, uh, there's a guy named James Randi, who's, uh, the head or at least, or the former head of the like skeptic society, something like that. And he has this challenge. It's called like the million dollar James Randi challenge. He says, if you can prove some kind of like paranormal, um, possibilities, ESP, or in this particular case that, uh, I, I'm not, I don't remember if the experiment is saying nice things to the water or like taping the word love on the on the container which contains the liquid versus yeah, the yeah, word, it might be, you know, like, I, something yeah. like that one of those he said um, you know if if that can happen under strict uh, controlled in a strict and controlled environment that that would be a um, candidate for winning a million dollar prize for proving this kind of you know mystical mystical connection with the universe but dr. Emoto refuses to take him up on the challenge. The way he constructs it, and I'm, I don't know all the details, but the way he constructs it in a way where there's a bit of funny business going on and he's not willing to put that particular experiment to James Randi's test. So we, in our previous conversation, when we were on the show last time, we talked a bit about um, how you have a, a, an appreciation for taking theoretical ideas, taking um, kind of intellectual academic uh, concepts and applying them to uh, everyday life using utilizing big ideas in um, whether it be self-improvement or uh, ways to I don't know be happier you're not averse to that you don't look down on that as some maybe academics or, or intellectuals do but it does seem to be at least in the case of the physical sciences that there's a danger of being too quick to make those connections to say because 
on the um, you know quantum level because when we're observing these microscopic particles or whatever, um, there are things that we have a hard time explaining and therefore we're, we're coming up with some theories about multiple dimensions, parallel universes, whatever may be possible. Would you say there's a danger in trying to say, oh, cool, here's this new research. The world is full of mystery and possibility. This is one of them. Let's immediately turn it into 10 lessons to make your life better. Do you think there's something dangerous about that in a way that there isn't in trying to apply, say, philosophy? Absolutely. And I am totally open to the idea that the universe is a really weird place. I mean, in my own personal metaphysics, I'm a dualist, which I, I actually call myself a reluctant dualist because I wish I weren't. But I, <laughs> I think that the evidence points towards there's some kind of fundamental distinction between mental stuff and physical stuff, um, which is uh, very radical. But I've I've come to that conclusion not because it makes me feel good or that's interesting because that once upon a time that I don't think would have been radical. You know, it sort of goes right. through phases. Yeah, that's right. Um, and yeah, it's and it, actually right now I think it's starting starting to become more popular. There's a, there's a philosopher named David Chalmers who's made some really clever arguments that a lot of people are starting to evaluate as hey maybe there's something to dualism, but. This is very different uh, than saying, hey, here's some unique uh, scientific things. Now I'm going to incorporate it into like a, a fun worldview where it's like, hey, we can't know anything about anything because things are contradictory and the world is just this great blurry paradox filled with nonsense. And so I can believe anything I want to believe and I can create my own reality like to, to me, there's a very big gap between those two things. Well, so let me ask you a question about effectiveness. So, um, my good friend TK Coleman, who's, who's been on the show before, he, he, he has this very, very interesting, uh, worldview, I guess, where he says, look, I'm far less interested though. He believes certain things are true and are false. He's far less interested in whether they're true or false and far more interested in whether they're useful to him. He sees all ideas and worldviews as sort of tools in a toolkit mm -hmm. that you can sort of pick up and use when they help you achieve your end. So, mm -hmm. What would you say to the argument that, look, Steve, whether or not um, my thoughts about these water molecules make them form into to beautiful patterns, um, you know, whether or not it's my belief that makes sure all the oxygen molecules in this room don't, you know, move over to one corner and make me suffocate and die, um, seeing that as a possible way the world works has altered my outlook my I'm more optimistic I'm happier I'm more it's it's because you know like there's a reason placebos work uh, because if you believe they work they make you like value is subjective right so if if believing all these things makes me more capable of going about life happily and, and in a way that's fulfilled is there a danger there what's wrong with that so I would like to say that you know it's great to be pragmatic and you know ultimately, we evaluate beliefs based on, you know, their usefulness and whatnot. But, but to be quite honest, I think the exact, exact opposite is true. That what, should, what we should be concerned with, essentially, is the accuracy of our worldviews. And then the, the practicality follows from that. So it might be the case that my value scale is based on my philosophic understanding of metaphysics. And if that strict cerebral philosophy is inaccurate then my value scales are essentially going to be based on sand. It might be the case that there is a value system which you can have that's based on an accurate worldview. And if that's the case, I would say, uh, without exception, reality is preferable to illusion. If it's the case that you know nihilism is true, and ultimately there's no meaning to anything, and we're just kind of floating on this rock in outer space that's gonna, that's gonna you know, get hit by an asteroid and we're all toast, if that's true, I think we should know about it. And I think we should act in accordance with that truth because it's true. So I, oh, go yeah. ahead, go ahead. I was just going to say, and, and if nihilism is true, I don't find it compelling that, oh, these illusory beliefs and these essentially lies, I'm tricking myself, makes me feel better. So I'm going to believe them. I'm not sympathetic to that at all. Um, maybe that's just because you place a higher subjective <laughs> preference on truth than other people do. <laughs> um, we can come, well, well, go ahead, go ahead. You're going to say something. I was just going to say that's, that is true. <laughs> it, uh, it's true from a psychological perspective. And what I would say is in my own life. So in my upbringing, I was raised in a very, um, like right wing fundamentalist Christian household. And I tried to have the appropriate, 
worldview in response to that. And so my value scale was kind of artificial based on those convenient beliefs that I held. And when I discovered that some of those ideas were inaccurate, it was devastating. It was absolutely devastating. And so I guess I've learned from experience that even if the truth is painful, good gosh, give it to me, give, give the truth to me rather than some you know, comfortable lie. Would you consider yourself uh, a skeptic to use that label? So I actually wrote a, I wrote a little a piece a while ago about that term. I would still consider myself a skeptic, but I think that term has been grossly abused because what skepticism, in my mind, what skepticism is, is kind of a default perspective of I'm not sure and I don't trust you. <laughs> and I'm going to evaluate each proposition on its own merit. Period. Without exception. It doesn't matter who the speaker of a proposition is. Uh, I'm going to be, my default is going to be, I don't know. And that, that, and in that worldview, I, I absolutely consider myself part of that. However, what skepticism like means in pop culture is this kind of, oh, I'm an atheist materialist and I'm going to make fun of people who have these silly beliefs. And it's, it's like a, it's already a predetermined worldview. And I, I'm not in that group of skeptics. I mean, I'm a dualist, right? So I can't right. be part of that. Group. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that, uh, skepticism you know, just the word, the concept to me is like a very high lofty, like beautiful ideal to question everything and, and demand, you know, consistently uh, that you get satisfactory answers. But as kind of a social movement, if you will, or a label, um, it, it is a little unbecoming these days when I see it, it almost has devolved to a kind of uh, scientism, like hiding behind it the is. word science, like, oh, well, I, I don't believe in dumb things. I believe in science. And you're exactly. like, well, what, what the hell does that even mean? What is science? Like, can you define it for, oh, somebody did an experiment somewhere, you know, therefore I believe that not your silly foo-foo. And it's like, that's exactly what it's turned into. And, so, and the, the terms like peer review get dropped all the time. Well, of course the scientist and the peer review and the experiment and the data, those are all the, the key words that will alert you to somebody that has this kind of crude, very crude scientist worldview. Yeah. It's, uh, I always feel like just, look, there's no such thing as science. There are, and the science is a process involving a lot of individuals who face different incentives, who have information. Sometimes they don't have information. It's, you can't just say, well, I believe what science tells me. Well, you know, science is not like a person that has a unified, <laughs> um, so something you said about your upbringing and how it was very devastating for you to realize, and, and there was costs involved, right? Social costs, uh, changing beliefs where you grow up in a certain belief system that everyone holds. And if you, you come to, to realize those are no longer, um, you come to realize those are not true. It's very difficult to change beliefs um, just for your own sort of psych psychology. It's hard to deal with, but there's social costs involved. And you said because of that, you are wary of getting too attached to um, sort of a, a, a movement of beliefs or a set of ideas that have a high cost of um, changing your mind again. I, I want to, do you think there's a danger there? Because I've seen this a lot. This is kind of the classic thing you see with like a, a, many atheists, for example. You get the feeling that they become only critics as a defense mechanism, all they do is criticize everyone else's ideas. They never yes. want, they want to be too cool for school. They never want to believe anything is true because the fear of being hoodwinked is the driving force in their life. The fear of being hoodwinked is actually greater than the thirst for truth. Do you ever fear that because of your experience of having a painful kind of shift in beliefs that you're, that you're erring too far in that direction, that you're just a little bit too skittish about getting hoodwinked? You, you know, you don't want to get your heart broken again. So that's an excellent question, and uh, I'd say kind of. So in my mind, the way, the way that my methodology works, for what it's worth, is I, I am like the slowest thinking snail in terms of um, being ready to accept a belief is true. I have a very limited worldview in a number of areas just because I don't I really don't want to believe something that's inaccurate and what I found is uh, there's a there's a few exceptions to this for example um, well let me let me ask you this as a default when that is the case when there's a whole lot of areas that you don't know a lot about and you don't right. want to form an opinion on there's kind of two default approaches one is to say I'm gonna assume everything said about this topic because I don't have a lot of knowledge is equally likely to be true and maybe I'm just gonna sort of assume the best and say, yeah, that, that could be true. That could also be true. Or I'm going to assume it's all equally likely to, to be false. And I'm just going to sort of assume it's all false and tell, you know, 
false until proven true or true until proven false? Do you have a default uh, one of those uh, sets of assumptions? Yes, it would be the latter. Um, okay. And so, so that's the reason for that is manyfold. Um, uh, so I want to say two things. One, first of all, the the areas in which this isn't the case, where I am I'm not just confident in belief. I, I think I have knowledge is in the areas of epistemology. So um, specifically in regards to like logically necessary propositions, things which can be grounded in logical uh, proof, I have positive beliefs in. And I'm very confident and certain that worldviews that are based on logical reasoning are, are accurate at their very bottom. I, I, I believe very strong, well, I, I would say I have knowledge that at the very bottom of every single worldview, whether people realize it or not, there is logic and there is logical necessity. Um, in, in regards to whether the default is, hey, this could be true, or and, and I'm just going to entertain it, or I'm assuming this is false until otherwise uh, uh, proven, the reason that I, I assume that things are false is, maybe this is, maybe there is a bit of a curmudgeon in me, is because the, the areas in which I've studied the professional opinion on any given topic is ridiculously inaccurate. So when you take a you take the mainstream uh, uh, consensus views on economics and they're horrendously wrong. I, I would say that if you take your average PhD, I I, I say this in all, all sincerity. I don't think they understand clearly the basis of economics, which is uh, economic growth comes from savings, not from consumption. I think there's a fundamental error that, that people don't understand. Uh, in philosophy, people don't, the, the, the mainstream expert opinion is not based in logic. It's based in empirics. It's based in scientism. Uh, and I think this is also a grave error. And in, so I'm a martial artist. In areas of martial arts, with some exceptions, tons of the, the vast majority of martial arts disciplines are based in illusion. They're based in the ideas of, 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 for example, in hard styles of karate. Well, uh, you know, it's one punch, one punch to a kill rather than ground fighting and whatnot. They have these theories based on these horribly inaccurate beliefs. And then, you know, when, when two styles fight one another, you see which, uh, which theory is, is more accurate. So, so the reason that I kind of assume people or I assume theories are wrong is because I assume people are inaccurate. <laughs> all the time, you know. You're, are you just unhappy all the time, Steve? No, no. It's it's very happy. It's very liberating because yeah. I I found uh, I, I guess the the exciting part to that is I've also found that in field after field after field there's a common thread of sensibility through all of them. So there is a common thread in philosophy of people who ground their ideas in logic. There's a common thread of people in the martial arts who ground their ideas in you know, ground fighting and sensibility, and in economics, who understand the basis of economics. And it also, and, and coming back, I would, because I say kind of everything comes back to philosophy, what I think the common thread is something like rationalism. <laughs> There's something like the, the careful, very, 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 very careful construction of theories that one deduced from the next, all the way going, going back to like a self-evident proposition. That's the way of going about critical thinking. And it just so happens that most people don't believe that. And so I think most most people's ideas are wrong. It's what's really interesting about that is it's not that hard. Take a specialist in a certain area, take take an economist. It's not very hard if you have a discussion with someone uh, devoid of any other context and say, you know, for example, uh, do you think that economic value is subjective Yes. Do you think that people, uh, when they make a choice, when they when they take an action, they are choosing to do the thing that, in their own subjective valuation, is the most valuable to them at the moment? Maybe it changes later. And we'll say yes. That's that's mm -hmm. essentially a tautologist, right? Mm -hmm. And then, and they'll say something like yes, of course, and it really adds nothing to our understanding. Then they'll turn around and write a paper about uh, a welfare economics explanation for why uh, putting a price ceiling on will increase social utility. Something that completely defies the very notions that they just agreed to. And they, and they almost fail to see that contradiction. Right. Do you think that part of the reason um, that kind of basic logical test is, is missing from so many of these dis disciplines is because of specialization? Um, you, you almost 
no one sort of has time to, to go learn basic logic and break things down to, to propositions. You know, if X is true, Y must follow, et cetera. And, and they're, they're spending too much time specializing, or do you think it's just an innate human desire to escape from truth? I mean, which would seem very odd because truth is the most useful thing for us achieving our, our ends. Uh, maybe, I don't know. What, what do you think is the, the reason that, that people like to move away from, um, you know, logical rigor? Isaac, I don't know. Uh, that's a very difficult question. I can only speculate. Um, just uh, pure speculation based on the interactions that I've had with a lot of people. I think that the there is more weight that people give to um, pragmatism than accuracy of their beliefs. So, and this is true in academia that people like, I, for example. Um, I had there was one economics professor at Alfred University, which I get where I got my um, undergrad degree. There was one economics professor, and he was on my um, little board thing when I was doing an honors thesis. He was he was on my board because it was about economics. And I went to his office, and I and uh, I said, you know, this is it, my paper was on a, a, the Austrian versus Keynesian perspective of the 2008 financial collapse. And he said, oh, Austrian economics. I said, yeah. He said, oh, I wouldn't have a job if I were an Austrian economist. <laughs> and I thought that was very a very little interesting tidbit into like, look, I'll run, I'll be the economist who runs the aggression, regression theorems and I'll, I'll teach the students and, you know, I'll write the papers, I'll get published. And it ultimately doesn't really matter if my ideas are a little bit inaccurate. And I think that happens all, all over the place. I think people just honestly don't, care as much about the accuracy of their ideas as they do like the effectiveness of appearing smart or, or something like that. That's my best guess. So I want to come back to something that you mentioned um, before about perception versus reality. Uh, and then, and then maybe we'll move on to some of these other paradoxes that you've written about. Um, you said something to the effect of, I believe in every instance, uh, knowing the truth is preferable to, um, you know, believing something that is, that is untrue or, or something, something akin to that. Is that a fair characterization? Yeah. Okay. What would you say to, if I said, look, um, I'm in a concentration camp somewhere, I'm getting, you know, tortured every day. Um, and the reality of the situation is I'm not going to make it out. I'll be here for another month or two until I die. And it's terrible. Um, if I indulge in a belief that is, if I, if I decide to, you know, adopt some sort of fantastical belief as, as a, I don't know, a kind of escapism, engage in, in fantasizing, imagining that I'm somewhere else, taking my mind kind of out of the situation, um, and even, and even fully believing in, uh, you know, something that turns out is not true. And if I did more research, I could find out was not true that let's say I'm going to be rescued tomorrow. Um, if that in that moment makes my life that much better and able to, to handle the difficulties and rigors, would you say even there that it would have been better if I knew the truth than if I believed something that was false, but that made me happy? Yes. Um, there's a difference between that's a power. Fantasy. That's a very powerful claim. Well, well, it is, and it's not very popular. And uh, what what I would say is this: that the, the the instinctive response to say yes, of course, if it makes you feel better in that circumstance, you know, believe it, is based on the idea, the philosophic idea that that feeling good matters, and that human life and it's the the pleasurability of human life matters, which is a debatable proposition. So. If it's the case that things don't actually matter, then if you're in dif very difficult circumstances and in if you have a positive belief and you can see that, look, I am an ant and ultimately it doesn't really matter if the ant gets its legs pulled off, then that's going to affect uh, uh, your perception of the situation. I'm not saying that you're an ant and I'm not saying that things are meaningless, but it's all it's all based on your deeper philosophic ideas. And I, what I would say, it would be a tragedy. In, in my mind, and this, is, this seems backwards, I'm sure, it would be a tragedy in my mind if somebody willingly believed something that, that deep down they thought was probably false just because it, it made them feel good. I think, that's, I, think, I think it's far, 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 it's categorically more important to be concerned with accuracy uh, than it is with, with pleasant feelings. Yeah, that's a, that's a very interesting um take. I mean, there's several things in there that I guess, you know, you could never 
you could never win an argument with someone who says, no, it just makes me feel so like I have no worries. It causes me no trouble that I believe things that are false or I don't examine them, whatever. I guess you could never necessarily convince them otherwise. Um, Literally. But but I think but I think there's something in that it's too easy to see this discussion and say, okay, so a guy like Steve must find no value in, uh, you know, fantasy or science fiction or sort of, um, you know, literature that has a, an escapist feel that is just, it's, it's otherworldly. It's, it's, you know, watching the matrix or whatever, such things that, you know, superheroes, people doing things that we don't see, you know, miraculous myths and tales that excite people. But I actually think that's, that would be incorrect to say that. And maybe, maybe for aesthetic reasons you do or don't like those things, but I don't think your belief about, wanting uh the truth and not wanting to believe things that are untrue affects our appreciation of those at all because i think if we really appreciate true myth and great storytelling what we appreciate are not the parts that are factually untrue we appreciate the truth in it the broader truths that the reason that it inspires us is you know because there's a truth in it um that is that is displayed through a, through a parable, through something fanciful. It's, it's, it's expressed in hyperbole, um, put in high relief to, to, to bring it out at us. Um, you know, okay, the person can fly or whatever else, but the truths in that are really about, you know, uh, forgiveness or overcoming, uh, great obstacles, um, having confidence, uh, in your abilities, finding whatever there's, there's, there's always sort of these core truths within these fantasy and, and mythical representations. And I think that's what gives them their value. It's not the person who literally believes, um, you know, the Lord of the Rings series actually happened in human history, um, you know, at some prior age is not getting more value out of them than the person who doesn't believe any of it's factually true, but is inspired by kind of the truth conveyed by the art. Does that make any sense to you? Yes, I completely agree with that. In fact, The Matrix is is my favorite movie. Uh, I think it's I think it's brilliant. Um, I, I just watched it with my ten year old son. It was like a it was like a ritualistic experience. He's he is now a man. I you know it's funny. Um, I I think part of the reason that I got involved in the martial arts was because of that movie. Because there's so many good <laughs> fight scenes too. Um, I, I agree with what you say, and I, I would take it many steps further. Uh, what I would say is, in fantasy clearly as fantasy gives you a deeper appreciation for reality. So when you have, like, uh, for a great example of this, I wrote a, a long piece about this, which I won't go into detail, but a great example of this is in, like, art and, uh, and music and whatnot. You, you could have, I appreciate the art, which is absurd. I love absurdist art. I think it's hysterical. It gives me a huge amount of pleasure to look at. I don't because I realize very clearly that it's not an accurate representation of reality. Like when you read um, Alice in Wonderland, it's hysterical. It's fun. It's it's because it's absurd because things don't work the way that they work in that fantasy land, which not only makes you enjoy the fantasy land more because it's like, oh, how, how does this other thing work? And what is, you know, people speak in all these in this ridiculous language and it's funny and you want to know more about the fantasy land. But also when you go back to the contrast of reality, you have an appreciation for the way things work in reality too. So I think I think clarity in all circumstances just enhances life that much more. And I, and I will say not to go too too deep or too woo woo, but in this pursuit of just in my own life pursuing accuracy always, I think I have discovered something really really exciting. And it, it, that it's the case that life isn't meaningless, and there's something out there which uh, is worth living for and worth dying for and life revolves around it. You know, I think I've actually discovered that, which is something that I'm going to be writing about. I think, uh, this Friday, I'm going to give a little taste of that. Ooh, very, very cool. We might have to to have a conversation about the meaning of life, uh, (laughs) next time. Well, I want to talk a little bit about, um, so, I mean, we've, we've addressed them in the context of, uh, quantum physics, these apparent paradoxes, something, you know, both existing and not existing, uh, simultaneously. I, I, I do like, by the way, in your article on quantum, um, physics, pointing out that Schrodinger's cat, which is sort of bizarrely used as a, see, look, this, this thought experiment shows us that things both exist and don't exist was, you know, originally conceived as a way to show how absurd that, that right. <laughs> viewpoint was. But, um, so we've talked about paradoxes in that context, but 
in a more general sense, uh, you've written twice now on common um, paradoxes, like philosophical paradoxes. The uh, Buridan's ass uh, is one, and the other one is, um, uh, I can't remember the name for it, like this sentence is false. The liar's paradox. The liar's paradox, right. Um, give us a quick, uh, well, quickly explain um, both of those paradoxes as they're commonly put forward, and then we can sort of talk about what's wrong with them and the dangers. Okay, so... Um... Uh, Buridan's ass is uh, a, a, one of the old paradoxes put, well, it, it's actually really old paradox, but it was popularized by a French philosopher named, named uh, Jean Buridan. And uh, it's, it, I actually kind of cheat in that example because I don't resolve it in the way that most people resolve it. It, 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 it posits this thought experiment. Imagine that there's a donkey that is perfectly in the middle of two identical stacks of hay on the left and on the right. And essentially says, if in that circumstance, the, the donkey would be unable to choose which bale of hay to eat from, and it would starve to death because it would be evaluated perfectly identically. Um, and yeah, I can talk about that if, if you'd like. And then the liar's paradox is arguably the most famous paradox, and in my opinion, the most difficult paradox and tricky paradox to resolve. And it's it's what you said. It's this sentence is false. And there's a lot of ways to... Uh, to rephrase it, but that's probably the most popular one. And uh, yeah, go ahead. No, and you're uh, in both of these cases, you're not only trying to take on these specific paradoxes and say, oh, there's there's a way right. to resolve this. Your claim is, look, paradoxes don't exist. It's stupid to pretend that they do. Uh, <laughs> you know, A and not A cannot both be true. Uh, that's just the way the universe works. Stop thinking. Whenever you think you found a paradox, you're just defining something wrong or you're missing something. Yes. Um, why Why do you think paradoxes have so much pull and why are you so keen on destroying everyone's fun with paradoxes? <laughs> <laughs> I keep saying you're not fun. I know that's not true, but I have to characterize you that way. Uh, well, so I'll deal with this, this second question first. Uh, what I would say is, I think I said this before, but at, at the very bottom of everybody's worldview and of every sensible proposition is logic. Logical necessity, logical structure, and logical rules are inescapably at the bottom of every sensible proposition. It, and it is necessary in order for something to be sensible that it presupposes logic. And there's a lot of reasons for this, but that is something I know to be true. This is not even a hypothesis. I know that this is the case. So when people come up with different constructions of sentences to try to argue that that's not the case, it's, it's, it's fundamentally, like, not only is it nonsensical, but it cuts at the very core of critical reasoning. If you throw out logic or if you doubt logic, you're, you're intellectually paralyzed. Whether, whether one realizes it or not, you can't make any steps anywhere without logic, without tiptoeing into insanity. It, you, logic is the be-all, end-all of all, every proposition of every field always, and it always will be. So that's the reason why I take it so seriously, and it, it's because people think that, no, it's, it, it's a hypothesis that logic is binding, and there are some ways we can get outside of it. No, you can't. I, I know that this is the case. Um, as to why it, it's compelling to people, again, I don't know the answer to that. What I would say is there's... Nonsensical propositions have some kind of weird mystique to them. So when somebody you know makes their elaborate theory about you know the cat is sitting on the chair and it's not sitting on the chair, people go, "Ooh, <laughs> yeah, that must be deep." I don't understand it, but because I don't understand it, that must be really that person's really smart. That seems to be what what's going on. That nonsense, if carefully articulated, if you're if you're just obfusc obfuscatory enough then people will start uh, really taking you seriously. In fact, there's a quote by, uh, gosh, who was it? I think it was Michel Foucault, who said something on the lines of... Uh, I, I can't make heads or tails of mo most of Foucault. <laughs> Foucault. Well, 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 part of the reason for that is that he intentionally was vague. Intentionally, because he said you have to have, it. I think it was at least 5% nonsense and incomprehensibility in order for people to take you seriously. And of course, Michel Foucault happens to be an extremely popular uh, French philosopher. So there's a reason why people can't understand what he's saying, or some parts of Hegel and lots of, there's a, there's a whole genre of philosophers that are intentionally nonsensical, 
and it should be no great surprise that we can't understand them. Um, it's interesting. I, I always found that the use of symbolic logic is very in its most basic form is like the ultimate, uh, you know, weapon against seemingly paradoxical or really confusing um, arguments because when you when you remove you start to realize that the words have so many meaning and there's so many definitional problems yeah. and there's so much baggage associated with terminology yeah. when you remove that and replace something like you know x or y for the various propositions made things come into clarity so quickly I, I recently saw one of these memes um, you know like the philosoraptor or something that someone yeah. posted and it said if free markets are so great why do corporations need subsidies and, and, uh-huh. and I was trying, you know, it's like this, oh, this gotcha moment, you know, and I, and I was trying to think there's a million ways you could, you know, you could go about, uh, exactly. responding to something like that. And I usually don't like to get into these comment thread discussions who, you know, somebody posting that is probably not that interested in actually a discussion anyway, but I thought, okay, if I had to, what would be the quickest, simplest way to mm. diffuse this? Cause there's so many things wrong with it. And right. I often find that boiling it down to, uh, symbols really, really helps. So, I just sort of thought in my mind, and maybe this isn't perfectly accurate for that argument, but you know, if if free markets uh, work, why do corporations need subsidies? Well, corporations getting subsidies are not any part of what an actual free market is supposed to be. And so I thought this basically the sentence is, um, you know, if X works, uh, why does not X exist? And when you think of it that way, it's it's absolutely <laughs> absurd. I mean, right? right? Like if eating healthily makes you, you know, uh, thinner why do people not eat healthily? You know, like why does junk food exist or something like right. it's, it's just, there's no truth value in it right. at all, but it's so hard to see with language. So, um, I don't know. I found that to be really interesting. And I, and I think it's kind of, it's kind of sad that, um, it's, it's such a turnoff. I don't know why that is when, it, I mean, even when I've done that in discussions, like, okay, let's boil this down. You're basically saying if Y then Z blah, blah, blah. And people immediately like start calling you names and be like, well, let's not get all technical here, Mr. You know, <laughs> heady intellectual. Like as soon as you start using symbols instead of words, which which can be much more clarifying, right. um, you kind of lose people. And I, I I don't know that that's that's always been a, a pain point for me. Yes, and I, I think language is naturally very ambiguous. Um, and so what people what people do is they take ambiguous language and they think it's reflective of an ambiguous reality. Mm. And what they don't realize is that yeah, you can you can create all kinds of funky sentences, be true and not true at the same time. But when you think about them and you try to clarify, okay, what are you actually saying as carefully as you can? There's no paradox there. I could say, for example, one of the sentences I like to use is, "I am tall." Well, yes, that's true. I am tall. I'm six foot four. I'm tall. But on a basketball court, professional basketball court, "I am not tall" is also true. So therefore, "I am tall" and "I am not tall" at the same time. <laughs> Like, oh, paradoxes exist, and now we build a worldview based on paradox. You know, paradoxes exist. In order to explain it, we need to create new dimensions where you exist as <laughs> tall in one and not tall in the other. Exactly, exactly. And then, yes, that that's exactly the way that I view uh, the way people abuse language in this way. When really, when you think about it, it's just a, it's just a vague proposition. The the clear proposition is, in some circumstances, I am tall. And then, if we were to try to construct a a a contradiction, it would be, in some circumstances, I am tall, and it is not the case in some circumstances, I am tall, which is obviously false, because if the, the former is true, then the latter is false, and it's clear as day. Do you have any, for people who say, hey, I like what I'm hearing, I really want to become a clearer, more logical thinker, are there books, articles, thinkers, techniques, practices that you would recommend? Well, there's a site called steve-patterson.com, and uh, there's an author there that kind of takes this perspective. Um, <laughs> he has some good stuff. <laughs> uh, I, to be honest, no, I, I, I don't. Um, I, I can. What I actually think this sounds kind of contradictory to what I've, I've been saying, but I think introductory logic courses, like undergraduate introductory logic courses that I've seen on YouTube and that I experienced one in in uh, my undergrad education. I think they're actually pretty good. I think they, ha- they have basic assumptions about symbolic logic, about dealing with P and not P and P, and P or Q and all this or stuff. Even just learning the, the most common logical fallacies, I mean, whether or not you know the, the formal names given to them. Right. It's like once you have that, it's, it's, it's this fun game. Every time you turn on the TV or something, yes. it's like, oh, I can point that one out. You know, there's a ad hominem, there's a red yes. herring. 
Yeah, and you see it. Yeah, exactly. You see it all the time. And I mean, gosh, if you're on Facebook at all, you see it all the time. People make <laughs> logical, strict logical errors uh, nonstop. And, but the, what one of the problems is uh, so much of clear reasoning I'm discovering has to do with a clear metaphysical understanding about reality. That if you're using imprecise terms and the, the boundaries which you create in the world are imprecise, then you're going to get really fuzzy thinking. And it's not so easy to come up with a clear, a clear metaphysics. I don't think there's any, any really simple answer here for how to really ground yourself in as clear a worldview as you possibly can. It's a, it's a work in progress. Hmm. So um, last time we chatted just a little bit at the end about your personal like writing habits and, and productivity, um, how you go about, you know, getting yourself to, to produce things. Um, I want to ask you a couple questions related to that. One, uh, are you working on any more full length books? Do you plan to do more books? I do definitely plan to do more books. Uh, this second, I'm not. I'm, I'm kind of I have a, a number of ideas uh, that I'm throwing around in my head. Um, but I think in the short term, I'm just going to try to be more consistent um, with the with the blog work. Um, one of the ideas I have is going to be a collection of essays about resolving paradoxes. It's going to be mm. called Paradox Resolved, and it's going to be a, a, just a collection of the most popular paradoxes that are out there and their simplest resolutions. Right now, yeah, I only have like two or three. I think I, ha I have another website that I worked on a while ago that I, I dealt with some paradoxes. So that's probably going to be in the works, but... Okay, uh, so yeah. Well, so when you wrote wrote the the book, uh, what's what's the big deal about Bitcoin? Did you approach writing that book in a different way than you approach writing individual blog posts? Is there different different you know things that you do, or is it essentially just the same? Well, you know that was something that I didn't. I I would have gotten wrong uh, before I started writing the book. I I would have thought that you you approach it very differently, but and I don't know if this is just because of the nature of that particular book that it turned out this way, but I essentially just, I had, a, I had a long list of topics that I wanted to cover. Uh, it was just that, you know, I want to cover decentralization and the, you know, the mining and all the different conceptual things that need to be covered. And then I just wrote a bunch of articles, essentially. <laughs> and then I put them together and conceptually linked them and made some segues. Uh, and it was, it was pretty much no different than had I written each one of those chapters for, you know, for an organization, which I was not expecting going into it. Um, I noticed that you are on your website. Um, you have something that you're a part of, uh, Patreon, Patreon, pa yeah. Patreon. Um, tell me a little bit about that. So there's a company out there that's called Patreon and it was, it was started by some musicians who saw, uh, a, an opportunity to help out content creators. Um, cause right now there's not a great way to patronize people that are creating creative work. Um, so what Patreon is, is you can donate either based, you, you can, you find your artist or your philosopher or whoever it is, who, whoever's producing work that you like, and you can become a patron of them. And what that means is either monthly, you give them a small monthly amount, you know, five bucks, 10 bucks, whatever, or you get, you, you can pledge per article that they write or per music video that they publish or per web comic, you, you know, you throw them a couple of bucks and it's like crowdsourcing um, patronizing of the arts. And that so is, I, it's a really interesting concept to, to take this very, very old and there's debates among, you know, I think clear thinking people in the artistic uh, community or, or, you know, people who have studied literature in the arts about the pros and cons of the, the patronage system mm -hmm. of, of old, where you've got some King or something who pays you to compose music. Um, you know, whether that's more or less constraining to the artist than let's say being, uh, you know, trying to sell your stuff in a market or to a publishing company. But, but it's a very old idea mm -hmm. that hasn't really been in use as much, uh, today, but combined with crowdfunding, it's like a combination of patronage with this broad market, um, process. It's like, it's like paying someone to do it because you trust that what they're going to produce will bring you value before they actually produce it. It's a very, very interesting concept. Yeah, and it's you know it's 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 all no obligation. So at any time, you know, if you don't like the work that somebody's producing, you just cancel, you know, and you're not you're not charged anything. And it's an experiment uh, for me. I know a lot of people have had success with it. I know there's so, uh, there, the the genres are like um, music producers and web comics. For some reason, have have become hmm. real popular there. And the the title of my work is it, 
it's something like Steve Patterson is creating philosophy that doesn't suck. <laughs> that's uh, that's the the niche that I'm trying to fill. And right now, I think I've got something like nineteen dollars a month. So it's it's. But I just started, and you know, I, I have a lot more content that I'm going to create, and we'll see. Uh, I don't. I have really no idea whether or not it's going to work out or not. Yeah. So I have to ask you. I mean, that that's a weird. We're entering this new world where all this sort of crowdfunding stuff is possible. Did it feel a little bit weird or embarrassing to be like? Hey, uh, do you want to support me to do philosophy? I know, you know, sort of an old school mentality, you know, I can picture like a, a parent or something being like, what, you're trying to get people to just voluntarily give you money to, <laughs> to think all day or whatever. Why don't you go work for a university? But, um, did that, was that a little bit vulnerable? I mean, like, what if you, what if you only ever get, you know, $7 a month or nothing, or what if you get a lot and then you feel like if somebody sees you out at a steak dinner, then like you feel guilty that they're supporting you. And you know what I mean? Was, was it weird yeah. for you to make that decision? Absolutely. Uh, without a doubt. Uh, and, and part of it too, is I'm, I'm going about this outside of the academic system, which is kind of another layer of preposterousness that <laughs> I'm saying I'm trying to create very, very high level philosophy in a very clear way that's accessible to people. And I'm doing it, you know, writing on my laptop and I'm not, you know, I'm not in school. So there's a lot of layers of, of presumption. And, uh, it, I don't, I don't know if I'd say it's in, in, embarrassing right now. I think right now it's kind of exciting because the book has been pretty well received and, you know, I've got a lot of people have donated some Bitcoin for, I, I just released an audiobook for free on YouTube. Um, and so far I've had good success. And so this seems like a natural progression, but yeah, I mean, if, if it's, if I'm going to be making 20 bucks a month through the, you know, through the site, yeah, I would say there's probably a measure of embarrassment because it would be reflective of like, Hey, but you, you think too highly of yourself. You know, people aren't going to, people aren't willing to pay this, you know, three bucks a month, even for the work that you're doing. So, you know, I, I don't know if I'll make a lot, I don't think I'm going to be making a lot of money through it, but if I do, I don't think I'll feel uh, too scared about, you know, taking people's money and, and using it to, to buy good food or anything, you know, I, I, I because and maybe this is, again, is, is my own delude, my self delusion. But I think the quality of what I'm producing, if people take the time to read it and don't care about my credentialing, I think it's very high. Yeah. So I'm OK with with uh, with saying that and, you know, put, Put me to the test, you know, people check out the site and, and see if you think I'm just deluded, but I don't know. We'll see. Well, I think it takes a lot of, a lot of humility to, to do that. I mean, there's, there's often a popular conception of, uh, arrogance and humility that I think is, is almost backwards that, oh, if you go out there and put your stuff out there for the world to see and even have the audacity to say, support me financially for this, right. that's some kind of arrogance. But if you've ever tried to do something like that, it takes more humility than probably anything else. I mean, <laughs> I mean, to, to be willing to put yourself out there and to say, Hey, evaluate my work on its merit. Maybe you like it. Maybe you don't to, to, yeah. um, just be that open about things. So, um, I think that's, I think it's very, very cool. So like I like to do, I, I found a way to, we're going to tie all that we talked about together <laughs> with a whole bunch of alliterative. We got popular physics, paradoxes, productivity, and patronage. What do you think? Okay. <laughs> I think it's brilliant. Oh man, Steve, this has been great. Um, I encourage uh, listeners, you can go to Steve. Or, sorry, steve-patterson.com. Check out uh, Steve's stuff and we hope to be talking to you again. Thanks, Isaac.